Hello, my name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. History 101, Icelandic heavy metal from the land of the ice and snow. We do Vikings today. We do some Holy Roman Empire too. We do a bunch of Middle medieval knights, but mostly we're doing Vikings. So we're going to do Western Europe from 500 to 1000 AD. This begins kind of the end section of our class. We start with the politics. We'll go through the culture and then into the Renaissance art. So your the last three videos are coming up, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming to the end. So we have to set the table. We have to come back. We've been all over the world. We've been in Africa. We've been in uh, Eastern Europe, in the Middle, Middle East. We've been in... Um, all over Asia with the Mongols. Well, we have to go back in time to the end of the Roman Empire. In the 400s, the barbarian Gothic and German tribes invaded and then settled on top of the Roman peasantry. They were only a couple of hundred thousand people in an empire of 20, 30, or 50 million people. So how did this happen? Well, the Roman Empire itself broke up into thousands of local kingdoms. Warlords, local chiefs who call themselves kings. If you read um, of books like The Last Kingdom and these historical fiction books that take place in this period, you'll see kind of this world is small, where the Roman Empire was big, it was connected. You could walk from Rome to Normandy get a ship to Britain, and then walk on roads all the way to Scotland. You couldn't do that anymore. You could barely walk. If you walked 100 miles, you were too far away from home. It was too far. There were no maps. It was just too big. So armies, large armies are 800 men now. These are not soldiers. These are warriors. And there's not even a 1,000 of them. British armies are in the in the hundreds. It's it's the the group that you could get around you. Remember, Caesar invaded Gaul with how many legions? Ten legions. He had fifty thousand men. The Roman imperial army was two hundred thousand people, commanded by an emperor. So the world is small. It's warlords. It's local chiefs. They call themselves big shots and then they fight with each other. But their armies that are going to fight in battle have no tactics. There's no real strategy. And it's the men you could get together at one place at one time to slam away at another group of men. Usually holding a spear and a shield or a sword and a shield. You line up and we're kind of going back to, to phalanx tactics in a way, but without strong phalanxes without the organization of the phalanx. So there's a lot of men hacking away. There's no literacy. Education dies out except for the church. We'll talk about that in our culture unit. There's no unity. We have very small kingdoms, personal rule. Every big shot who wants to, you know, fight with other people to make a name for themselves. There's no cities. Trade dies out. Manufacturing dies out. This is the exact opposite of what's happening to the Arabs, who are going to start out in the 600s, who start out in the same kind of nomadic, barbarian kind of place. No cities, no unity, no literacy. And the Arabs are going to absorb all of that stuff and create big cities. Cairo, Baghdad. 
they're going to absorb and then create their cultures, Islamic culture, on top of uh, Greek and Roman and Persian cultures. So the Arabs are going to become civilized, whereas Europe goes into what we call, what we used to call the Dark Ages. And I know historians don't like that anymore. They're like, no, it wasn't very dark. There was still kings. and But this is a, but it's apocalypse. It is an apocalypse. Let's just be honest. It's a post-apocalyptic Europe in 600 AD is a post-apocalyptic world. The Roman Empire has died. There's, there's nothing, none of the uh, aqueducts work. Right? You're in these ruins. If you've played D&D or watched Lord of the Rings, that's the world you're living in. It's a violent world of lots of little kings, lots of little violence, not a lot of protection, no law and order, farther than you could spit. And yet you're seeing the evidence of a great civilization everywhere. Like in Spain and Italy, all of the aqueducts were still up. They just weren't working. The roads were still paved. This is the opposite of the Arabs. By 800, though, Charlemagne is going to recreate what we will call the Holy Roman Empire. And the joke about that is it wasn't holy because it wasn't. It wasn't a religious institution. It wasn't Roman because these are Germans. They're not Roman at all. And it's not even an empire because it will fall apart fairly quickly after Charlemagne dies. But what we see in the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne is Germanic kingdoms combining Germanic, especially Frankish, the people who will become the French, political power with Roman Christian cultural power. This is the group that wins at the Battle of Chalon we talked about in, in the 500s and saves Europe from the Huns. And this is where the Catholic Church put its its um, loyalty, put its power. Um, Charles Martel will save Europe again. Not again, but, you know, in 732. So 200 years after the um, saving of Europe from the Huns at the Battle of Chalon, C-H-A-L-O-N-S, Charles Martel, the hammer, will save Europe again from the Islamic invasion, the Moors at Tours, T-O-U-R-S. His grandson, Charlemagne, will conquer Germany, the Saxons being the most famous, invades Islamic Spain. We get the Song of Roland comes out of that. Um, and there's this idea that maybe Europe can be reunified. Charlemagne will march his armies into Italy, take over Rome. Okay. So we have this combination of Germanic political power, Roman cultural power, Christian cultural power. Good. Maybe we can have a new Roman Empire. It'll be based on Gaul, i.e. France. Good. It's not Italy, but Gaul is a traditional heartland of the Roman Empire. Christianity. Yes, it's going to dominate education, culture, and local knowledge because the Germans and the Goths who are living in these places don't have it. So they don't have the settled society, so they're going to have to take the Christian one that survives. What about long-distance trade? Well, we need more cities. But Italy is doing well. Italy is keeping its contacts up with the Arabs. It's not the Roman Empire, but it's a good start. There's an Italian connection to the Byzantine Empire, who is jealous of 
of course, this Holy Roman Empire. Because remember, the Byzantine kings, the Byzantine emperors, they're not kings, they're emperors, want to recreate the Roman Empire. Well, now they've got a competitor who is calling himself a Roman emperor. So we're back to the 400s where we have two Roman emperors competing with each other. Well, what happens? Well, Charlemagne's successors are not up to the job, and the Byzantine successors to Justinian have to deal with the Muslims. So they don't they can't spend a lot of time fighting each other. And but every time they try to make alliances, it never really works. One Byzantine princess is married to Otto, Otto the first, and he kind of sends her back. He's like, she bathes too much. Literally, his complaint, he divorces her wife or tries to divorce his wife because she eats with a fork and she bathes all the time. It freaked him out. So it, the, they're just too different in their cultures. The Byzantines view the Germans as just barbarians of axe-wielding barbarians. And they're not really Christian also, definitely not Roman. So they're not civilized. Whereas the Germans and the Goths, the Germanic peoples of, of Europe, view the Byzantines as a feat, as, you know, four-eyed smarty pants who can't get their shit together. Oh, you're this great empire. Why did you lose half of it? Where are your armies? Why do your generals betray your own emperor? What, who's emperor this week? You've murdered everybody else. Like, until Basil comes along, there's a long line of just not good emperors. And they're not impressive. And the Europeans, the Western Europeans, just don't take them seriously. They're weak and soft. They don't stand the shield wall. And how do I know they don't stand the shield wall? Because the... Byzantine emperors will hire Vikings to make their own shield wall. This is the Varangian guard. Giant men with either a, uh, a shield and a hand, single-handed axe, sometimes a sword, or famously that double-handed giant two-ended two axe that just cleave through people. They go running into a battle and just hack these people apart. Scare the hell out of the Muslims and everybody else. So we see this this new organization. Maybe we could get a new Roman Empire, but there's problems. And so here's our image from uh, of the Carolingian Empire. It stretches well into Eastern Europe. So their future goals: Christianize Germany because we've conquered it. Now you got to make them Christian. Catholicize the Slavic East because the Slavs, especially under Basil are becoming orthodox. So they're they're barbarians, but they're becoming Christian, but they're becoming the wrong kinds of Christian. As remember after 717, Catholicism, the Pope and the patriarchs and the emperors break up, right? Over over um, icons. By 1000 it's a complete break. But that had been going on for a while. So it's Christianized Germany, and what they mean by that is make it Catholic, but they're not even remotely, these are pagan people, we have to make them Christian. The Slavs are slowly becoming Christian, but they're becoming Orthodox Christians, so we have to convert them to Catholics. The only group that that will happen to is the Poles. Um, we got to push Islam out of Spain and Portugal, 
and we have to civilize the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in England. We have to bring them back into the empire. So we need good successors. We need nothing really bad to happen. And we could, we could create a new Roman Empire and unify Europe again. So what happens? Charlemagne's grandsons break the empire apart. We have talked about this with the Mongolian, with Genghis Khan's grandsons. Same kind of thing. And they spend their lives basically fighting each other. And you get a Golic kingdom, you get an Italian um, Rhine kingdom, and then you get a Germanic kingdom. This begins the France versus Germany wars. Now, technically, they go back even further. The Gauls fought the Germans. But this is the European conflict that will, that will really take over. I know the English-French wars get famous, but the real conflict in Europe until 1945. So for the next 2,000 years, we are talking Germany versus France. The Rhineland will be the traditional battlefield. It will be massive destruction. My Swedes will take part in this. The Vikings will take part in this. Um, everyone will take part in this. It will go, it will cause two world wars. It will cause more than two world wars. Um, we just named two world wars, two world wars, but other wars that are fought all over the world are also fought in Germany on these, on this traditional Rhineland battlefield. It's going to cause massive destruction and it's going to continue for ages. Italy will break up into rich, but weak city states with the, with the, Gallic and German parts of the empire fighting each other, the Italians basically go their own way. They have money, and so they basically buy their own independence. But they're small. They're weak. They're based on trade. And this is the way Italy will remain more or less until 1860, when a series of revolutions will smush Italy together. So, all right. So the empire doesn't stay together. It breaks up and then continues to fight and break up into smaller pieces, but at least nothing bad happens, right? No. Heavy metal Vikings show up. The 800s to 1000s heavy metal Vikings come from Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland and they come bearing, well, violence. The Danes and the Norwegians go west. They are going to invade Scotland. They're going to invade England. They're going to take over northern France. They're going to discover Iceland, discover Greenland, and even go to Vinland, North America. The Swedes and the Finns go east. They're going to go east into Russia, what will become Russia. In fact, it's the Swedes that these Vikings are called Rus. They will give Russia is named for them. They will become absorbed by the larger Slavic peoples and become the Russians. Um, but they will conquer the rivers that flow into the Black Sea and begin trade with the Byzantine Empire. So the Varingian Guard, the giant double-handed axe guys for the Byzantines, are all Swedes or Finns. One or the other. While the Danes and the Norwegians are going west. They wreck havoc. The Swedes, the Finns wreck havoc in the, in the Slavic kingdoms of the forest. So why did the Vikings leave Scandinavia? The truth is, nobody knows. 
is it revenge for Charlemagne conquering uh, the northern German cities, the Norman Ger German towns, their allies? Danish lords see all this instability and decide to exploit it to get back their lost wealth. Remember, Charlemagne was strong. He conquered a bunch of stuff. His grandsons are weak. They're murdering each other. So Danish kings are like, take advantage of this, right? It's a mess over there. There's the idea of climate change, that the population was too high. The farming was not good enough. And so less food equaled nomads on the sea, that the Vikings are nomads on the move. They just got on ships like the Goths in the 400s or lots of peoples during the Bronze Age collapse. There's also the third reason, success. A few pirate raiders did it, and then they found Europe to be weak. Monasteries were easy pickings. There was no army to fight. So they went home, and they told folks back home that there's easy money to be made. Sure, you could be a farmer and try to get roots out of the Scandinavian um, short growing season, or you could go to France. Kick the hell out of a bunch of weak, wimpy French lords, steal all their money, seduce their wives, and have a great time doing it. And so that having met success, you get more rating which means the Europeans start fleeing the coastal areas, which means Vikings can now start to settle. And they move into this better farmland. Like, if you don't want it, I'll take it. Their ship is the longboats that are troops and transports. 50 men are, and women, raiders. Ocean, very good ocean ships. I mean, it must have been brutal in the North Sea weather. Good ocean ships, but their big thing is a low draft. They could go well up river, much better than any kind of Roman-based Mediterranean ships that people were using. So the river systems of Europe become the arteries on which the Vikings can move. The Nor is the long-range trading ship, the K-N-O-R-R. That's a ship built to carry goods. So you have the examples. We have our examples if you're watching the video. We got the long ship. We got the Nyor. The northern ship is really what it means. Mobility. They have a low draft. They have rowers so they could go upriver. They could attack or trade with the interiors. Which is where the more money will be, right? On the edges, you realize the Vikings might attack you, so you pull back. Well, now the Vikings can get up those rivers. They are light enough to either even be carried and rolled to other rivers, which is what they will do in Russia, in the Rus. The Rus will do this. Because the rivers don't all connect to the Black Sea. So you have to go across to get from the Bug to the Volga. You have to pick up your ship. And so they're light enough that a crew can roll them or carry them to the other rivers and set them on sail again. So what about Viking society? Oh, there are there. If you're watching the video, there's our Varingian guard, giant doubles, double handed axe with a double uh, axe blade. So what are our Vikings? They're all men, all warriors. 
They're warriors. All men are fighters. They live in a harsh climate. They are harsh men. And who are they fighting? Farmers. They're fighting the farmers, peasant farmers of France, England, and Italy. Maybe they're fighting some monks. I mean, come on. Is this serious? They are better armed than the Slavs in Eastern Europe. They are similar armed to the Frankish army, but the Vikings are far more mobile, able to use their ships to get around the coast or get up, to, up and down the rivers. They are worse armed than the Caliphate or the Byzantine armies, which is why you don't have large Viking kingdoms in Spain. And you have Viking allies with the Byzantines. Now, there's a one example of the Norse, the Norsemen, having conquered Sicily, having gone all the way around Spain to conquer Sicily, then trying to conquer the Byzantine Empire and getting kind of close. But there's also a willingness for the Vikings just to trade with the Byzantines. The Byzantines are perfectly happy to pay off the Vikings and or hire them. So um, why conquer them if they're willing to work with you kind of thing? But they are worse armed than the Caliphate, the Islamic, or the Byzantine armies. So the Vikings would lose a pitched battle against a, the Byzantine imperial army. The Normans are able to adapt to horses to allow for land mobility. This is the start of the heavy armed and armored knight. That's different. That's the Western European knight, not the cataphractoi of the Byzantine armies of the east of the Middle East. There, they go all the way back to Armenian troops and Aryan troops. And they go as back as, as you as soon as you could do scale mail, you put it on your horses. Um, especially once the stirrup is invented. So the Normans are the first kind of Vikings, and they're going to occupy northern France. They're going to be Vikings of the plains. They are going to be Vikings of the forest. They are going to leave their they are going to leave their ships and take horses. And now Vikings have land mobility. And you thought Vikings were tough on the seas. Whoo! Wait till you're there on their horses. So what do we get? We get Viking raids. The Vikings start with raids. And what do they attack? They attack the monasteries. Why? That's where the money was. The monasteries was where people kept their money for safekeeping. And it's where they gave money to buy their way into heaven. So they gave large, large donations. And the monasteries kept that money. So you kill priests and it gives you a bad reputation. So Vikings have had a bad reputation in, in the historiography since. Um, in the medieval historiography, Vikings are terrible. They're the spawns of Satan. They're all kinds of stuff. What they then do is start raiding nearby towns. You, you attack the monastery, but then you attack the towns the monasteries are attached to. So you steal food, you steal money, you steal women. Right? So they look like nomadic raiders. They look like nomadic horse lords out in Central Asia. The Frankish Imperial Army couldn't protect France or Germany, which humiliated the kings. Paris is sacked. The Vikings went up. They didn't march. They sailed up the Seine and sacked Paris. That's a humiliation in 845. And if you could sack Paris, it means the Vikings can essentially sack any place. The Frankish army was not a horse army for the most part. It was an infantry army. Remember, these are German barbarians. They're Germanic peoples. 
So they're mostly on infantry. Charlemagne's armies were mostly infantry. It can't move. It can't organize and move fast enough to offset Viking mobility. And so what happens is they give land to the Vikings. The Daneland in East Anglia, in the eastern parts of England, Normandy, you get the Normans. You give land to the, to the Vikings and say, you protect it from other Vikings. It's yours. So unable to protect France or Germany, the, Frank, the Frankish kings give land to the Vikings. That's Normandy, and you'll get the Normans, who are now French Vikings on horseback. There, when they invade England, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, they smash four of the five Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. The most famous, one of the most famous kings that come out of this for this humiliation is Ethelred. Ethelred known as the Unreedy, which I know Wikipedia says it does not mean unready. And it doesn't. Unreedy means you're not able to bring your army together. You're not able to bring all your men together. You are not able to lead effectively. Which is effectively being unready. I mean, he's the unready. He got smashed in 1010. He's kicked out of Britain by the Danish invasion. In 1066, the Norman Vikings invade England, win at Hastings, and destroy Anglo Saxon culture and replace it not with Viking culture alone, but with French, Viking, European Catholicism culture. Basically bringing England back from um, the Scandinavian world and bringing it back into the Mediterranean world. That's what the Normans did. So by the time the Normans show up between 845 and 1066, in those 200 years, the Norman Vikings had become Francified, had become French. Tough French, but still French. So what are the results of our Vikings? First, they created a European-wide trading network, the first since the Romans. Viking ships can go from Constantinople through Sicily to Spain to Ireland to England and Scotland back to Scandinavia. They could go from the Shetland to the Faroe to, the, uh, to Iceland to Greenland to Vinland. They could go down the rivers to Novgorod. To Kiev. Down the Don and Dnieper, Dnieper rivers to the Black Sea. Again, to Constantinople. They could go up the Danube. The Vikings created the first European-wide trading network since the Romans. Two, the creation of the knight. When you think of the Middle Ages, I'm sure you think of the plate-armored, solid-plate, shiny-armored knight. Well, they were created the fight Vikings. It is an armored... What is a knight? A knight is an armored soldier on horseback, i.e. mobility. The idea is that you could get a bunch of knights together and wherever the Vikings pop up, you can use your horses and interior lines to get there first, to get there before the Vikings cause any damage. 
or can flee. And then you could smash the Vikings. So they're going to be heavier armed and armored than the Vikings are. But all of that, the horses, the armor, the swords, all need money. Which means they need land and more importantly, the peasant taxpayers on that land. See, these guys can't work. They can't be farmers. They have to uh, be professional soldiers. So they have to train. They have to work out. They have to ride their horses. They have to, they have to practice in their tournaments. They have to practice with their swords and their, and their lances. So they need money to be professional soldiers because there is no institution that can hire a professional army. So what we end up with is feudalism. Now, I know there are historians who are like, feudalism doesn't exist in this, but the classical term of feudalism is the lord of the manor. The lord owning a thousand acres of land and the peasants working that land paying the lord some form of taxation. And then the lord dividing up that land to other knights, to other lords who owe that lord service. And so you get a king to the dukes, the dukes to the uh, Marquises, I don't know what, how it goes in the British system from Duke on down, but and I guess Marquise would be French, but how it goes down from step, step, step to the local peasant. But lords get local authority in exchange for military service. The king doesn't want to deal with problems anymore. He's got to deal with Vikings. So he says to the local lord, you get taxation and you are the law. The local lord will have independent, a form of independence in exchange for showing up when I need you. So you get this system where the local lord has this level of independence versus the king or the emperor. And what happens over time? Over time, those local lords are going to want more independence, more independence, and more independence. Just like children. Right? If you, those of you who have children, you know that a five-year-old will cling to you, a three-year-old will cling to you, right? But 10-year-old will wander off, not too far, maybe. Meanwhile, your teenager is in a car and going down to the beach and hanging out with people you've never met before, right? And then your 25-year-old is like backpacking through Australia and not ever calling home. Well, that's all, as they get older, as time goes on, they become more and more and more independent and claim more and more independence. So these local lords do the same thing to these kings. They become a power structure, especially if they can unite against the king, they could overthrow a king, they could fight, they could take their power and limit the king's power, say in 1215 with the Magna Carta. They can make the king admit he, he's not that powerful. What's the third thing? The Vikings assimilated into the larger European cultures. The Normans become Catholic French Italians. They start in Normandy, in northern France, where they become Francophile. They become Francified. But then, because of a complicated thing, they conquer southern Italy and Sicily. I remember it becomes the kingdom of the two Sicilies. But remember the old Greek part of Sicily? They conquer that. Well, then they absorb their French Vikings who now absorb Italian culture, Sicilian culture. So they become French, Catholic French Italians, Vikings. 
the Normans absorbed Danish England after 1066. They absorbed Sicily and southern Italy also in the 1060s. The Swedish Rus become Slavic Orthodox Russia. They assimilate into the Slavic Orthodox world, and you get Slavic Orthodox Russia. This combination of Swedish Rus with the Slavic forest peoples, boom, you now have the, the Russian tribes. And finally, Icelandic poets. Icelandic poets rock. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Ah. Icelandic poets rock. Why? Poetic tales become the chronicles of famous men, women, and deeds. They come from the land of the ice and snow. So you get Beowulf, the start of English literature. It's a Scandinavian Viking tale about the heroic deeds versus supernatural forces. It's a king. It's not really a king. It's a lord. It's a chieftain. His crew of homeboys fighting to protect their land. You get the days of the week named after Scandinavian gods. Tyr, Tuesday. Odin, Woden, Wednesday. Tor, Thursday. Freya, Friedag, Friday. You also get hell as Gehenna. The concept of hell comes from the Scandinavian. It's not that uh, land where bad things happened didn't have, but our word hell comes from the Scandinavians. And the Icelandic poets for a time replaced Christian priests as the main storytellers. No king would go without Icelandic poets with them. They become the biggest cultural threat to Christianity since the Islamic conquests. Their style, their meter, the, the, the tales, very much Aryan. We talked about the Aryans when they showed up in, in India. Very much the same thing. Warrior gods doing warrior stuff, telling tales of warriors. Well, that's the Icelandic poets. Who are the best, best poets to maintain the oral tradition? Remember, the Vikings don't read or write. There's some runes, but... The Icelandic poets, mostly most Vikings, go by way of oral tradition. And so the Icelandic poets rock. And so there's all these sagas, there's all these tales, and they leave behind a larger tradition than you originally think of. Because I bet you don't think the days of the week are Vikings or Scandinavian. But they come from the Icelandic tales. Now, Christianity will win because the Normans will become Catholics. They'll conquer England. Um, the Scandinavians will eventually become Christian themselves. So Christianity will eventually win. Um, but for a while, Roman Christianity, Mediterranean, the Mediterranean civilization based upon Roman Christianity gets its head handed to it, gets kicked in the ass. It survives, but it, it this is the second group of nomadic barbarians who are able to tear through 
Mediterranean civilization. In fact, it's the third, starting if you want to include the Gauls in that, who wrecked both the Greeks and the Roman world a couple of times before they were eventually pacified. So the, the Mediterranean culture will win. The Mediterranean Christian Catholic culture will win. But it's a tough fight for a while. And so that brings us to the end. We have awesome Icelandic poets. We have badass Viking axemen. We have long ships. We've got trade to North America. So in our next episode, we will do medieval culture and then Renaissance culture, which is really where the Mediterranean wins. It's really in the Renaissance that the Mediterranean will come out all guns a blazing and be like, we're better than the middle ages. And, uh, it will be in the art. It will be in the music. It will be in everything. The Renaissance is Italian and, uh, Mediterranean culture resplendent having recovered from all of these hurts. So be careful, be safe, go listen to some Led Zeppelin or Iron Maiden and be careful out there.